something you're thankful for. They'll be used for a peace for us to get things together. Now I need to get together. There are many ways in which the Christian life is filled with tension. It's an already but not yet sort of existence. And the tension has to do with living between the already, living in the now, with the knowledge of the past, and what we know to be not yet. But what I mean by this is that according to Scripture, we live in a life filled with paradox. By faith in Christ, there are spiritual blessings that are already ours, but we haven't really enjoyed the full enjoyment of them. Blessings that are not totally ours yet. Therefore, it's really incumbent on us, it's really necessary for us to be good students of the Word of God. For example, as believers, we believe that we have already received the spirit of adoption. Romans 8, verse 15. And yet in the same chapter, Paul says that we eagerly await adoption as sons. Verse 23. We know that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Yet, we are sealed for the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30. Paul writes to those who are sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2, and yet he prays, may God sanctify you completely, 1 Thessalonians 5. We hear this a lot. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. Yet when he writes to the Romans that we have been justified by the blood, he says, much more shall we be saved by Him. Romans 5.9 He made us alive and raised us up with Him according to Ephesians 2.6. And yet 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Our life of faith, as the Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews describes it, is lived with the assurance of things hoped for in the future, and yet the conviction of things not seen in the present. This is life between the times. And the less we know about and the less we try to understand this mindset, the more we will inevitably misread Scripture. And if we misread Scripture, we will live misled lives. Let me give you one example. Not understanding the tensions have led people to think that there are 
two ways mentioned regarding salvation. By grace alone and or salvation by works. But there is no salvation by grace alone that is devoid of works. Whether you look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. And not as a result of works so that no one can boast. But then verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or James chapter 2, verse 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has, has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The implied answer is no. No. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But, James says, if someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. And James immediately goes on to say, you believe in that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe that God is one. And they shudder. So, in regard to just mental ascent, just propositional belief, what many people refer to as, well, just believe, or just have faith, James will say, you foolish person, don't you know that faith apart from works is useless? Now, you're reasonable people. Many of you are married and in relationships. How good would it do if every single morning and every single night I said to my wife, I love you, but then never did a single thing that indicated that that was true? Wouldn't mean much, would it? Those words? Even if it was true, even if I loved her, even if I loved her with the totality of my being, but I didn't do anything to demonstrate that love, those words would be meaningless. And yet there are a lot of people out here in this world that say, all you got to do is believe. You don't have to do anything else. All you got to do is believe. That's what the Bible says. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Not at all. Before Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus, he saw this age and the age to come much differently. You see, what we need to have been picking up from the book of Daniel is that the focus of the book should not be on the prophetic telling of the future. 
The focus of the book should be on the faithfulness of Daniel and his three friends. What we believe to be true about God and Christian living are not oil and water. They're organically connected like the seed and the tree. So if we long to think God's thoughts after Him and we live for Him, then we have to follow the way His inspired apostles thought and lived. The mind must be informed, but just as importantly, we need to have our hearts and our lives transformed. You see, Paul learned to think about redemptive history differently after his Damascus Road experience. He learned that the important dividing line between this age and the age to come, the midpoint that separates the two, was none other than Jesus, the Messiah, coming. Now, I shared with you that in terms of the structure of these last three chapters, chapter 10 to 11, 1 is kind of the prologue, the setting. And that's what we looked at last week. Today we're going to look at 11.2 to 12.4, which is actually the vision and the message that he got. And then next Sunday we will complete our study of Daniel by looking at how he brings this all to a conclusion. But the setting, once again, is really obvious. Our text, chapter 11, verse 2, begins that it was the third year of Cyrus during the period of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the setting is on the banks of the Tigris River. And on the anniversary of the exodus from Egypt, a new exodus had begun. With the decree of Cyrus, they were leaving the exile. They were leaving Babylonia and heading back to the promised land. Now, I feel fairly certain that almost everybody here is probably aware of the 70 years of exile. That's a fairly common understanding in Christianity. That Israel had not done what they were supposed to do, so God allowed the Nebuchadnezzar and the troops to come and conquer and take them into captivity. But the exile didn't do what it was intended to do. They didn't start living correctly. And so the punishment of the exile, because it didn't achieve its purpose, the punishment was multiplied by seven. That message, Daniel said, was true. It was turbulent, it was transparent, but it was not anymore about the 70 years. It was about the 70 weeks. 490 years. Chapter 9, verse 24 said, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That's what's behind this message of our text today. That's what forms the background, the context for chapters 10 to 12. Understanding the vision and the plan in terms of the 490 years. 
Now last week I helped you a little bit to show that if you extrapolate that out, the 483 years of the 69 weeks comes right to, many say, to the day that Jesus came before John to be baptized in the River Jordan. To be anointed. The Spirit descended upon Him. The voice came from heaven. This is My Son. And so there's still another week that has to be understood and dealt with. There is a key passage, I believe, that I think we need to look at a little bit more closely. Chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That's a part of the text that I want to read. I'm not going to read the whole 11th chapter. I want to pick up with verse 40 of chapter 11. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, even in Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible has a chapter heading there. It says the time of the end. What end? The end of the Herodian dynasty. Not the end of all time. At that time, chapter 12, verse 1, shall arise Michael, the great prince who is in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Written in what book? It does not say the book of life. As in Revelation, the books and the book. Their name shall be written in the book. Context, Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall 
shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is the reading of God's Word. This is a key passage to decipher what is now, what is not yet, and why I have chosen to move my dividing point not between the last verse of 11 and the first verse of 12, but between verses 4 and 5. What we have in this first section of our text today, chapter 11, verses 2 to 20, is a retelling of the story. In this day and age, you and I are used to reading. We're generally accustomed to books which follow a straightforward chronological order. My, my daughter was watching a movie last night. And in the movie, there were scenes where the girl was looking at herself in a hospital, and then there were other scenes at a different time point. I didn't do well. I walked out of the room. Uh, my mind doesn't do well jumping back and forth between one time period and another. <laughs> We're not geared that way today. We're used to chronological order, even if it's in the form of memories related long after events, still the themes tend to be developed on the timeline. And we've seen that in the book of Daniel uh, in, verse, in chapters 1 to 6. There was a chronological in the year, in the year, in the year. But beginning with chapter 7, what we have is more like a spiral staircase where you're coming back and you're revisiting and you're going a little bit higher. And you're coming back and you're revisiting and you're going a little bit higher to get a better view of what this is all about. A different vantage point. Daniel had previously seen in pictorial fashion what is now being set before him in a linear fashion. And the viewpoint is in terms of the beautiful land, verse 16. The land that God had covenanted to His people. Now, if you read history today, you don't read history that deals with anything where God's people are the center, the key. They're always marginalized. You read today, Palestine is seen as merely a, a land bridge between the north and the south. Biblical revelation, however, sees the kingdom to which they belong as the center point and the key to history. And so, in 11.2-4, we're once again given a sketch of the immediate future. The power of the Persian Empire is in view, and it's about to fall. And the three more kings of verse 2, the fourth king that it brings us to, is none other than Xerxes. He's known to have gathered enormous resources through taxation and depletion. Uh, and the portrait of the mighty king whose empire would be fragmented was when Alexander came in and conquered. And we already saw how that was divided in four, but not to his own heirs because they had been murdered. And so, starting with verse 21, 
of chapter 11, we have this telling of a, a despicable, a contemptible person, which would have been Antiochus IV. We saw him last week in the introduction. He came into power by means of two coups, by various means including both intrigue and deceit, which is mentioned in verse 21 to 23. He promoted Hellenization, which brought him into direct conflict with Jews who were committed to Orthodox piety. And again, the danger of feeling secure is underlined in verse 24, as is the time limit that God would place on those hostile human activities. Verse 24, but only for a time. You see, what we have here in this chapter is a rapid flow of history. By the way, Antiochus, it did invade Egypt in 168 B.C. And that's when the Ptolemies agreed to a joint reign. And then he found himself with a humiliated, humiliating Roman ultimatum to leave. And so what did he do? He vented his anger against God and His people, actually enlisting some of the Jews who forsook the covenant. Jews who were sympathetic to the Hellenization process. And what that did is that culminated in the massacre of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and ravaging of the city. But that wasn't 70 AD yet. This was what happened when Antiochus, about 140-50, set up an altar to Zeus right on the altar of the Jewish temple. In the midst of that apostasy, though, others were faithful to death. That's what verse 33 is talking about. And it's in that context that we know about the famous uh, resistance of the Maccabees. Read those intertestamental books. We don't have them in our Bible. But first and second Maccabees are good historical books. They're not inspired in the view of most. But they're good historical books to tell us what was going on in that 400 years of silence between the close of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. Probably the most difficult section is the section that I chose to read for you. It begins with verse 36. It's a description of an arrogant king. There's little question that the description exceeds all that we know, even of the blasphemous Antiochus. But who is it? I believe a better interpretation is that it's the king, that king represents the great king who ruled just prior to the birth of Christ, Herod the Great, ruled from 40 to 4 BC. In some respects, that king would repeat the indignation visited upon Israel by, by Antiochus Epiphanes. And his arrogance would be manifest in several ways. He would do as he pleased. He would exalt himself over every God. He would speak monstrous things about the God of gods. He would reject the traditional religion of the fathers. And in the fifth one is we're told that he would have no regard for the desire of women. I believe that phrase, and there is reason for this, I believe that phrase has to do with the love of mothers for their little kids. 
And what did Herod do when he heard about the birth of Jesus? He had all the babies up to the age of two slaughtered. In fact, at the end time, the last period before the appearance of the Messiah, Herod would become allies with the king of the south, and what is spoken of as reports from the north actually came in a letter from his son in Rome. The letter reported that Herod's two other sons and their heirs had written a slanderous letter to Rome about their father. So do you know what Herod did? Had his own two sons killed. And when we read, when I read, that he would pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, Herod did just that. Although he had a palace in Jerusalem, he built another palace outside of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. So he wouldn't have to deal with all that riffraff. And he was so hated, he was so hated that he issued an order that upon his death, all of the members, the leading members of the Jewish leading party would be murdered so that there would be weeping and mourning in the city at the time of his death. Because he knew nobody was going to be crying for him. The historian Josephus describes the terrible end of Herod. He talks about it where no one would come to his end, no one would help him in the text that I read. Josephus describes that by saying that he literally rotted away and suffered convulsions and he actually uh, died there outside of Jerusalem with no one mourning for his death. So what about these verses 1 to 4? The tribulation and the awakening. I will deny, not deny that there are many, including some of my friends, who I respect, who see this as a tribulation that's going to come before the final judgment. That is not my belief. The angel who had been outlining Israel's future for Daniel in chapter 11 now made a dramatic proclamation concerning the final events of the nation's existence. He announced that a great distress and a great awakening would take place in Israel in the days to come. And he made four points regarding that great distress. First, that it would be unprecedented. Israel had been through many trying experiences in their history, but the angel spoke of the time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, his own time. I think that ordeal seems to be the same as prophesied in the closing verses of chapter 9 regarding the Roman War of A.D. 66-70. And the nation of Israel did come to a time of tribulation and distress unsurpassed. 
Flavius Josephus, again, an eyewitness of these events, said, Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. Jesus foretold the calamities that would befall the Jewish people in the siege of Jerusalem. In fact, it would be the greatest that had ever been since the beginning of the world. The angel pointed out the unprecedented, unprecedented distress that it would occur at that time during the period of the Herodian dynasty. So chapter 12 obviously is a continuation of chapter 11. So if the king in verses 11, 36, to 45 is Herod the Great, then it seems most probable that the events of chapter 12 followed shortly after his reign. And the angel also promised that some of Daniel's people, in other words, some of the Jews, would be delivered from that unprecedented time of distress. So who are those people? Those people were found written in the book. And they would be rescued in those desperate days. Listen, because this is really important. Jesus told His disciples. They read it. They heard it. They believed it. Jesus told His disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem and the events that would be leading up to that. And they took it to heart. When Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed, we know from first century documents that the Christians got out of Jerusalem and there is no record. Though the blood flowed through the streets, there is no record of a single Christian whose name is written in the book of the living, not the book of the dead. Not a single Christian lost their life in the destruction of Jerusalem. So what really is the message of Daniel? If it was only about things that would happen in the distant future, some tribulation that's still to come down the road, of what value would it have been to his original hearers or readers? Of what value would it have been to Daniel? That would have given him no hope. I believe that the challenge that you and I need to hear comes by way of a warning. Conflict and persecution are inevitable. If you are not experiencing conflict and persecution, you need to be re-examining whether or not you're truly living the Christian life. Jesus said, we're going to come to this starting a week after now, three weeks from now, 1st of October. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Paul wrote, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Conflict and persecution are inevitable for the faithful believer. 
I had this passage that I'm about to share with you written down, but I didn't write the source. I had it in quotation marks, but I guess I thought I would remember where I saw it and who had written it. But it was on a, a note that had been stuck in one of my commentaries on Daniel. And I think it's words that you and I need to hear and take to heart. Because a lot of times you hear people preach a name it and claim it kind of Christianity. You name those blessings, you claim those blessings, and God will give them to you. While they're sitting on golden chairs in front of the television camera. Let me tell you something. If you are living your best life, You are living a life filled with persecution. Or it's not your best life. I would love to show you, flash you a big set of smiley whites and tell you everything's going to be alright. But I wouldn't be true to God's Word. Here is what I want to close with. Although God will not remove all sources of threat and will even allow some believers to die for their faith, He will not forget them, but will raise them up to everlasting life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today. Often, living in some form of a delusion because people have said that this or that or these things or those things have to happen before your Son can return. Help us to listen to your Son who said that the return will be like a thief in the night. Help us to be like your son who taught the parable about the five wise and the five foolish who were caught off guard because the, the Lord returned when some weren't ready. Yes, help us to be ready. Yes. And help us to realize also from your Lord's parables that those who are left behind are not the unrighteous, not the sinners. But the weeds are taken first and burned. The bad fish are taken first and cast out. Help us to be the ones that are left behind to join you for eternity when that destruction takes place. Help us to live faithful lives like Daniel did. Help us to, to dare to be like Daniel. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation commitment is He leadeth me, number 14.